This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Richie Norton, an award-winning best-selling author and entrepreneur about his new book called Anti-Time Management. Reclaim your time and revolutionize your results with the power of time tipping. He'll provide some very interesting facts on time management, or rather anti-time management, and might just change the way you think about time management forever, something we all need to get better at in today's busy world. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm the founder of More Than Engineering, and I help engineers and technology professionals with leadership and career coaching to create meaningful careers and lives. And this is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast brought to you by EMI, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. Now it's time to jump into the main segment of the episode. Today I have the pleasure to have with me Richie Norton. He's an award-winning, best-selling author and entrepreneur. Richie, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Oh man, I'm so excited to be here. You're so good to me. Thank you so much. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'd love to just have you introduce yourself in your own words. We want people to get to know you a little bit about who you are, what life is like in Richie's world. Currently, I'm at Sunset Beach in Hawaii. That's where I live. And I have four children. My youngest uh, passed away. We've also had three foster kids that came and went after two years. And I live in a way that I learned after some tragedies, you know, in my family that a lot of the ways we've been taught to manage our time and and to create things takes away from the most important values that we have. I've spent my time learning, discovering, researching, and teaching people how to start something stupid, how their stupid idea is the new smart, how to engineer their life from the start, even within the business or work that they're at. And today that's brought me around the world into teaching people how to create life and business in a way that helps them live without regrets. I have a business. It's a Inc. 5000 company. We make over a hundred different products at any given time. We have the whole supply chain from creating it, packaging it, shipping it, warehousing it, fulfilling it. And we do this for companies and we do this for entrepreneurs and we do this for individuals. We do this for creators, YouTube people. We do this in a number of different ways. There's a lot of different things that I do, but at the end of the day, none of it really matters. And so I try to focus on things that matter and uh, help people do the same. So it really gets to the kind of the core of what we want to talk about. I mean, know you've got a book coming out here called Anti-Time Management. And so my understanding is this, this really stems from a lot of the things you were just talking about, some of the tragedies and experiences and life lessons you've had to learn. Shifting how you view time and how you use your time really took on different perspectives. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your story about what got you to this point to write this book on anti-time management, and then we'll get into what that really means. 
just straight up his history. And I can get into some personal stuff too. Time management was never intended to give anyone freedom ever. It was specifically designed and engineered to measure and to squeeze every drop of blood, sweat, and tears from factory workers. And so it's bizarre that we still use this word in the self-help industry or in the personal development space to figure out how we're going to optimize our time personally, because it was never designed to be that. My brother-in-law passed away at 21 in his sleep, and he was living on and off with us for about five years during that period. He got to know our family, obviously grew up with my wife, got, got to know our kids, got to know me in a very, very, very close way. And when he passed, it really shook me up because we've been told, at least in the States, that one day after working for a company for 40 years, I know things have changed, that you will be able to retire and do the things that you want. And I think most of us now know that doesn't exist anymore if it ever existed. And for him, it wouldn't even be a possibility because that was the end of his life on earth. When that happened, it really shook us up. And I decided to just rethink the way we work, rethink the way we do things. And even before Facebook existed, before social media was popular, unless you consider email social media, I told myself I was going to work for my cell phone. This is when cell phones folded. The idea was to create a positive constraint, a forcing function. How can one thing in my life eliminate all these other decisions and choices that I might have to make? So if I told myself I needed to work for my cell phone, I had to figure out ways to not work in an office. Also, I needed to figure out ways how to get things done, even when a computer was needed. I needed to figure out how I can get things done while I'm traveling on the road for six months with my family across the country or in Europe or in Asia. And by doing so, the creative juices started flowing and I was able to figure it out. A few years later, we had our fourth son and we named him Gavin after my brother-in-law, Gavin. And this little boy brought so much joy into our lives. And he got a cough and the cough, babies get coughs. We took him to the doctor. They said that he's fine. It persisted. They said it might be RSV. It wasn't. And eventually one night he was having a really hard time breathing and we took him to the emergency room and we thought we'd be in and out of there like normal because they always just said nothing's wrong basically and stopped being like overprotective parents. And we're like, this is our fourth, man. I, I don't know. I think we know maybe a little more than, than you might think we do. Finally, they tested for something called pertussis, and it turns out that's what he had, and also known as whooping cough, and it was just too much on his little body. And I remember one night, a nurse came in, and she said, you guys need to stay the night, which is a, a very weird thing to say, because we always stayed the night. What she was really doing was trying to be polite, and she was trying to cue us in on the idea that this actually was the end. And I remember when they took out all the little wires and all the, the tubes out of his little body, and I held him for a moment, handed him to my wife. She was in a rocking chair, rocking him. And I had my hand on his little heart and we sang lullabies and we just waited and felt those last beats. When that happens as a parent, because you know we do our best to protect. And when you can't and you have no control over it, it is tragic to say the least. And when we left the hospital empty-handed, you know, the world obviously never felt heavier. And over time, a mentor of my wife and I, she asked us, what did you learn? What did you learn from your brother-in-law passing away and from your son passing away? And I was like, I don't know. And my wife's like, ask me a year from now. And I started thinking about that question. And I came up with what I call Gavin's Law, which is live to start to live. And the idea is when you live to start those ideas that are pressing on your mind now, 
you really do start living. Too many people wonder what they're doing, why they're here, where they're going. And yet at the exact same time that they have these confusing, depressing thoughts, there is sometimes a, an inkling, you know, a nugget of wisdom, a little push, some inspiration that's telling them they should do something, but they hide it because they're scared. They don't want to look stupid. Uh, they have pride. You know, they've already been successful. So doing something new means you have the potential of failing and looking bad. They procrastinate. They're perfectionists. So all these things are getting in front of this thing that could change our lives. So Gavin's Law, live to start to live. So here's what I learned after I wrote the book. After I wrote The Power of Starting Something Stupid, which Brene Brown blogged about and Steve Forbes, you know, endorsed and Jack Canfield and, and Covey and, and Seth Godin, and all these you know, heroes of mine, they really came out of the woodwork to, to support the message. What I learned was, one, I became the stupid guy. So everybody, if you Google stupid Richie, I'm everywhere. And they would come to me with their stupid idea or to try and find one. And I got to be honest, it is hard. I'm definitely oversimplifying. But at some point, it's not that difficult to understand what a market wants and to give it to them. When someone has a stupid idea, could we find a market fit? Could we make it digital products, courses, online stuff, online assets, physical products, doesn't matter what it is. Is there a way to help them create it and sell it and scale it? The answer is, of course, of course you can do that. But what was most interesting to me, this is what I learned, is that people didn't want their stupid idea. They didn't want it at all. They wanted what they thought would come from the success of this new job, this new business, this new idea. And I learned that really quick. What that shows up like is somebody making a bunch of money and having no time. What this shows up like is somebody being successful, but being sad. And you go, how could the richest people have no time? How could the richest people be sad? There's all kinds of psychology things going on here. I'm not going there. I'm just saying they designed and specifically intended on getting this thing. They went to probably years of school to get this job and they're sad, they're mad, they're frustrated. And it's because that's not what they wanted. They wanted what they thought would come after the success of doing that thing. I talked to venture capitalists about that. I go, they're like interviewing people, trying to see who they're going to fund. And I go, did you ever ask them what they want to do after this venture is funded, after this venture is successful, after they sell the venture, go public? They never do. And I go, well, you know better than me. They're not out doing this to change the world. They say they are, but they're doing it because after it's successful, they want something else. And they laugh. They laugh every time because they know it's so desperately true because they're the exact same person. That's why I wrote anti-time management. Because when you think beyond goals, when you think beyond strengths, when you think beyond habits, you suddenly land in the place in your mind that you actually want to be. And once you can work from that destination, instead of endlessly towards that destination, once you work from the success of the success, the goal of the goal, the job of the goal is to create something. When you work from that, guess what? All your options and how you create something change. How often do we say we're going to do 10 things and the 11th thing is going to happen when one, it doesn't actually happen. And two, if it does, you get there and you realize you could have done it another way. You wasted all this time and money. So when you work from the future, it opens up all these different opportunities. So that's what anti-time management is. It helps people reclaim their time and revolutionize their results through what I call the power of, of time tipping. Aristotle called it final cause. He, he had these four causes. This is his theory. It was basically to create something, 
you need these four things. You need like the materials to do it. You need like the design to do it. You need an agent or a person to make it. And eventually it's made. And so academics like to say, let's talk about making a table. So they go, you need wood, you need the design, you need the, the person to like put it together. And all of a sudden you have a table. And then I say, but what's the table for? Because if the table is a legacy piece for the family for generations to come, why not? But if the goal was you're going to have some meeting tonight with some family or friends or a business partner, you can do Uber Eats because the effect of the goal, the essence of the goal, what had nothing to do with the table was the experience you're trying to create. And at that point, you realize this is a metaphor, of course, all that time and money spent on building a table wasn't a total waste. And as, as Six Sigma and Theory of Constraints and Lean Six Sigma people, that's Muda. We got to get rid of that. And so when you start thinking that way, it changes everything you do. And actually, every project you work on creates time and creates space instead of taking it away. In time management, management means control. It's not about controlling time. It's who controls your time. In time management, they control your time. In anti-time management, you control your time. Can't imagine going through some of those things with three little kids of my own and uh, going through some of that stuff. I mean, can only imagine some of the perspectives, but I'm grateful. And I know many others that you've worked with and helped over the years for the lessons that you've taken and shared with others through some of the great tragedies that, that you've experienced. That's a lesson of life in, in general that we can take from that. Second of all, you are the stupid guy. Even on my own browser, I know you've got a course connected to your Starting Something Stupid book, and I've got that bookmarked as Stupid RN, Stupid Richie Norton. So yeah, you're the stupid guy. There you go. I love it. This whole idea, though, of anti-time management to people who have been kind of, for lack of a better word, indoctrinated in this world of time management, managing my time, time blocking my calendar, this, that, and the other, so that I can you know, have everything organized and whatnot get the most done in the least amount of time, like efficiency, productivity, all this stuff, it can seem counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. But you're claiming here, and I want to dig into this, that, that really under time management doing that, you have less time available. So how does one, whether they're in a job or they are an entrepreneur, take that and look at that like, okay, recognize I've got stuff to get done and I need to do that productively and efficiently, but also balancing some of the things you're talking about, about final cause, perhaps you're saying, am I doing the right things? Am I getting the right things done? Or like, how do I take that and then apply that to where I am today? This is a new way of thinking. When I started writing about this and, and sharing what is working, you know, I've been researching this for a long time, years, and it was before the pandemic. And the pandemic only accelerated the viability and necessity for anti-time management. It's like when people try to apply technology, old technology, to a new social landscape, you get the result that you're getting. When people try to apply technological ideas to a world where robots are taking over and people are worried about their jobs, you know, it's not that much different, is it? from when the time it is, it's a ton different, but it's not that much different. The, the idea from when, you know, people stopped using horses and buggies because of the car or people started tweeting or people started using a telephone. It's not the concept of, of like losing jobs, but how jobs are going to change. We become more human when all the robotic things, repetition things we've been asked to do for a, a long time are replaced by actual robots. See time management, turn us into robots, do this over and over and over in the exact same way. What's the effect of time management? full calendars, empty lives. Well, doesn't time management help us be more productive? Of course it does. It was designed to be more productive. Is it still that way? Sure. But how are you measuring that productivity? 
And when you realize that you actually are more productive at home instead of being at the office when Bob taps you on the shoulder every five minutes, we have some things to talk about. These aren't the best examples, and I can give you some better examples in a minute, but the concept is this. When Frederick Winslow Taylor became and is known as the father of scientific management, he was not thinking about the personal lives of the workers. I have read the history. You go and do it too. But what's interesting is he himself was off in Europe, becoming this tennis guy, smelling the roses and taking his time and not practicing anything that he was teaching to the factories. Look it up. It's plain as day. The reason no one knows about it is no one talks about it. We have entire schools of management. Why would we talk about this? Because that's the way it worked in the 20th century. And we're borrowing 20th century ideas and moving them into the 21st century, where why wouldn't we be working in a new way? It's back in the day that they would also call scientific management Taylorism after Fred. Today, they call it no one talks about it. Digital Taylorism. Every swipe on your computer is tracked. When flexibility becomes a corporate benefit, it's no longer a perk of the job. It is a way to keep you at the job. And that's why people are losing talent. That's why people are quitting jobs and getting better jobs, even a higher pay somewhere else. It's the greatest opportunity in the world to be able to put your values first and create work that supports it as opposed to what we've been taught now for over 100 years, nearly 200 years, move to the city, put work first, and leave the time for your family as the breadcrumbs of your life. Why? People don't want that anymore. So you can actually, through anti-time management, be actually more productive than you would be through traditional time management and be able to do it around your values. If you bake a cake and you bake it without sugar, you don't expect it to be sweet. When people start companies and they don't bake in their freedom of time, their freedom of choice, they illogically tell themselves that five years from now, they're going to have more time and more choices when they didn't bake it in from the start. It's completely illogical. In fact, people intend and plan on sacrificing their family so that one day they can have their family back only to realize that a 13-year-old becomes 18 in those five years and you missed out on all that time. So anti-time management, yes, is a different way of thinking. And it's one of the most important things you can do is to think differently about the way you want to live your life and the way you want to create results. You hear quotes all the time, like, do now what others aren't willing to do so that later you can live how others aren't able to live or stuff like that. It's always this like sacrifice now to get the result later kind of a thing mentality that, that we always hear, even for those who are doing creative stuff. I want to get into some of the ideas and principles around there's the principles and there's the applications of the principles. So one of them, let's talk about the ideas of time tipping that you talk about and how it can help us align or prioritize the time that we are spending and make the most of that. Like, what is this idea of time tipping? Can you explain that to us? And and then we can work through an application here. That's a great question. And I know we have an audience of engineers from all kinds of different backgrounds. And engineers are some of the smartest people on the planet. The idea is to ask a better question, you get a better answer. An engineer is going to engineer for what they want to create. And if they take it to a next level, they're going to be strategic about that. There's a lot of ways to do something. So if you were to ask an engineer, how do I engineer this business so that my life or the lives of my employees are also optimized? You got to believe that you're smart enough to figure that out. It's just that we don't even consider the question. Think about that. You don't even consider the question. 
in time tipping, the idea is Covey said, begin with the end in mind. Covey did not say, begin with means in mind. And yet people make means ends unto themselves. Goals are not ends. Goals are milestones. They're means. Habits were obsessed. Habits are not ends. They're means. Strengths were obsessed. Why would a corporation want you to only do your strengths? For obvious reasons. It's faster, better, and cheaper. Why would they teach you something new? And now they have a reason not to promote you? Because if you want to do something different, it doesn't fit in your little personality test. You just have to think about it. Like, you go, this sounds different. This sounds so weird. It's so, and you go, no, no, no. You want to get scientific about this? Look at the data. Look at it from this lens. In time tipping, the idea is to stop managing time and start prioritizing attention. Not just blocking out the calendars, doing all this stuff, getting caught up and everything, but saying, where's my focus? Am I understanding that right? Let's go a little deeper here. And why am I focused on that even to the final cause idea or with the end in mind? Where is that focus going to lead me? And is that where I want to go? Let's think about it from the angle of an individual who loves their work and they love their job. Hard work is a high, but do you have to sacrifice something you love more to continue that high? No one works for work's sake. Maybe a few people on the planet, they work for something else. Whether you're an executive, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're an employee, whether you're just doing everyday tasks, there is a way to ask yourself, instead of asking or instead of saying, I can't do this thing because of this reason, you can ask yourself how or what or who, what can be done? Who can help me? How can I, how can the system, how can this thing happen without these terrible things I'm worried about happening by Tuesday? This opens up a space in your mind and allows you to be creative, to problem solve. You understand that in today's world, the greatest leaders, it used to be that they were driven by, at one point, just results. Then the IBM study started coming out. No, the greatest leaders in today's world that are needed, driven by creativity. Then it changed. No, they're driven by data. And now you go, the data lies. It lies every day. There's not a single person that doesn't open their computer to see data lying to them, maybe every second of every day. And so you go, what kind of leaders do we need? We need leaders that have discernment, that can see the data, understand, and make decisions, even in the gaps where they don't know what's going to happen using creativity. That's what anti-time management allows you to do. allows you to create, to bake in your values from the start, both professionally, so your professional goals support your personal goals, and personally, so your personal goals support your professional goals. I had an executive reach out to me. He was an accountant, and he's making $250,000 a year. And he hated his life. He hated his job, and he wanted to spend more time with his family. He said, I said, cool, what do you want to do? He says, I'm going to start a gym. And I go, cool. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to need two gyms. And I go, okay, then what? And he says, then I'll be profitable and be able to spend time with my family. And I go, how long will that take? He goes, five years. And how old are your kids? He goes, 13 and 15. And I go, so hold on. You're telling me that when your kids are 18 and 20, you finally have time to be with them. So once you understand like what the goal of the goal is, you can actually change things. You can change it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. It goes back to this, ask a better question, get a better answer. You could start a gym online. You could do the gym that has the little swipe cards where no one's there and it's 24 seven. The result doesn't have to change, but how you work changes everything. Change how you're paid, change your life, change how you work, change your life. 
So we talked a little bit about time tipping, asking these different questions, you know, who or what can allow this to happen. We're also going through different phases of things that we're working on and stuff. And so you talk about the principle of project stacking, making the things that we work on essentially have multiple outcomes and, and benefits, right? So how can this idea of project stacking also help engineers like maybe save time on projects or increase impact? Like, what does this look like? Teach the principle and then let's find another example here. Well, let's use an example that everyone should know. It's a, a super example and you may or may not agree with everything, but you look at Elon Musk and you go, all of his things support each other. He has at least a tripod of projects. You got this car thing. You got this solar thing, you got this space thing. And if you look closely, they all support one another. He's got this boring tunnel thing. He's got this brain thing. You go on and on and on. You realize that one decision that he makes affects multiple things at the same time. You can do this in your own personal life too. Think about, let's talk about an entrepreneur. Let's say the entrepreneur wants to have more time with their family and they want to like travel the world but they end up losing all their time and all their availability into the business. And yet with one choice, they could be on the road with their family, doing their work from their cell phone. If they wanted to, they don't have to, and getting more done this way because they created positive constraints and forcing functions that allow them to get more work done when they're away because they're not the bottleneck anymore than they are when they're present. That's a mind blowing idea. And it's real project stacking one decision impacts all the others. But for me, I do it like this. What's the purpose? What's the final cause? That will generate priorities. The problem with priorities under time management is priorities are automatically, ironically, placed last on the timeline. Every time. This is my priority. I'll make sure I get that done last. This is my priority. Now you're going, no, you don't. You always do the things first. Do you? Go back and look at that. Go back and tell me what your actual priorities and tell me if you did that first or you did that last. Almost every time it's done last. It's because we optimize for the 10 steps unnecessarily that will create it. Priorities aren't purposes. Purposes are purposes. Priorities means to precede and proceed to enhance your purpose. That's a lot of P words, Richie. Word salad here. I'm going to tell you more. I'm going to tell you more. So you go purpose, priority, project. This operationalizes how you work. Again, this is the opposite of what time management does. Time management will optimize for the work. They'll totally ignore the full purpose. You understand that you can be highly productive and not have an actual output that makes any valuable sense to anyone. Why? Because when you work nine to five, you're measured to work from nine to five, even though you know you could get it done from nine to 10. This is the way it works. And then you figure out ways to get paid. I'm all about getting paid first. But when you choose, how am I going to make money first? You start operationalizing around methods and means instead of purpose. So you go purpose, priorities, projects, payments. And in that way, you create a castle and a moat, an economic and strategic moat that protects what you're doing. This doesn't have to be the yin and yang of family and at work or your profession you know, and your personal. This thing can work in isolation, just at work or just at family. I feel strongly though that we are not two different people. We are one. And so I look at it from a holistic standpoint. Let's figure out how to apply this. So let's say someone is an employee 
And so some engineering industries still work on the operation of like billable hours, kind of like lawyers and, and some other industries do, where like, hey, I work an hour and that gets billed to the client. And so then that, you know, circles, but I have to work a certain amount of billable hours to connect with my salary level and all that stuff. And even in conversations I've had with engineers trying to say like, hey, I recognize that I deliver value beyond this framework of hours worked time. But thinking about how do they actually shift, whether within or without their company or industry, to say, hey, do I change how I get paid? If I recognize that, I see the gap and the thing that doesn't really line up here, but how do they actually move through that process to change that? It's a difficult piece. It's a great question. It's very real. And I have an unusual number, never expected it, of clients that are lawyers, psychologists, and doctors for that very reason. No joke. I never expected it. I'm not consulting them on, on their expertise. I'm consulting them on business models and how to get the results they are working for in addition to the results they're doing for their patients and clients. Everything I'm saying, there's no judgment. Anyone can do whatever they want. If you like what you're doing, great. If it's supporting that final cause that you're really liking, right? Yeah. If you don't like what you're doing, this is what frustrates me and actually actually makes me sad because I've seen it happen too many times. Don't lie to yourself to make yourself feel better. Stop lying to yourself that these things you're going to doing are going to eventually get you a result when they never will, ever. That's what frustrates me. Why do we lie to ourselves? We lie to ourselves because we're lied to. We've been taught a certain way to be doing it. But you just look, just as an observer, nothing even scientific, and you tell me how things worked out for everyone around you. And the ones that it worked out great for, learn from them. The ones that it didn't work out that great for, learn from them. And that's the cool thing is that we can learn from anyone and tragedies happen all around us. You can't control everything. For someone working by the hour, if they don't want to work by the hour anymore, you have to recognize you chose to work by the hour and you have a commitment and a responsibility to continue to do so unless you decide to change your business model. I don't have control over my business model. You went to school. So let's say college, maybe not just four years. Maybe it was six, maybe it was eight, maybe it was 12 to do this. You chose this. So the first thing is, it's not like, I don't want it anymore. I'm not going to do it. It's possible. But first recognize that you made the choice to be in this situation. Stop lying to yourself. Second, if you want to do it a different way, first look around and see if there's anyone in the building or outside of the building that's doing it a different way and learn from them. And then if there is not a single person doing that, do you want to be a pioneer? Do you want to change the way you do it? And you do all these things, but that's the idea. You start with your purpose. You don't have to change working by the hour if you don't want to. But if you're saying, I hate my job because I have to work by the hour, who's to say you can't charge more? I already know there's somebody charging $10 to make an hour to make me a graphic design. I also know I'm willing to spend $1,000 on one graphic design from probably someone with the exact same skill set. Finally, when you put purpose first, you can make better decisions. First, you do, people go, what do I do, Richie? And I go, decide who you want to be and you'll know what to do. Show up as that person. That's a whole different principle here that would be fun to, to get into this whole like decide who you want to be, act from kind of like this future self state, right? People act like they're held captive to their jobs. And that's because they are. And yet the average uh, American is only in their job for 4.6 years. So you're not. What are we talking about anymore? People are lying to themselves. That's the problem. 
I have to do it this way. This is the way my industry works. Really? Because every person that's upended every industry, this is what we call invention. This is what we call innovation has done it different. You, I'm not that kind of person. Well, what kind of person are you? Decide who you want to be and you'll know what to do. That recognize that no one in the building is doing it. An innovation, a change needs to happen. But hey, I've got like responsibilities. I've got a family. I got a mortgage to take care of and, and blah, blah, blah. Yes, these are other choices, right? That we've made in this stage today that we've got things that need to be taken care of. Somehow money needs to come in. I can't just quit. What does that do something stupid or time tipping process look like from a start to, hey, I've got this endpoint. I know I want to change how I work, how I get paid, how things adjust. There's some shifts that need to be made. Can't just do that cold turkey necessarily. Some people might not have the means or the ability to do that without something set up. So what does that look like to start today to make that shift from that person that you want to become? I'm a big believer in keeping your job. I'm not telling anyone to quit their job. There's nothing about that has to be done. It's totally individual, totally personalized, totally custom. No one should necessarily, some people do, right? And they tout that and shout it from the rooftops. There's also people who are very excited about their badge of honor of how long and hard they work, when in reality, most of their work possibly at the corporation are, are symbols of productivity instead of actual productivity. Oh, I'm at the office two hours later. Why aren't you? Well, you should have got your, your work done on time. This is what executives tell me when they see someone staying up later, instead of seeing it as like a badge of honor of how committed they are, they go, what's wrong with that person? Why didn't they get it done in the time we gave them? This is a different world, man. Let's stop playing these games. And yet I juxtaposition, you know, in my book, the story of Syrah, who grew up homeless. Her, she saw her dad pass away of an overdose. She was in gangs and she eventually becomes Grammy award winning rapper. And that's because she never had the opportunity to have recitals and to learn and to practice. She showed up and said, I am this person got on stages, got booed off until the point that someone said, maybe I should teach you. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? See, people come out of the woodwork when you start projects. That's why projects are so important. You juxtaposition that with someone um, who, this is too real, man, sits in a dark room in his office playing solitaire every day for 10 years on his computer and gets promoted because that's the job. That's the look of the job. When you start getting into like specifics of certain people and what they're doing, it's very, very individualized. But if you ask yourself a better question, you'll find the answer. How can you? If you really do want to stop working at your job, you've already found the answer. Stop working at your job. And yes, maybe you shouldn't quit now, but maybe you need to find some ways to find money on the side that are in alignment with your values. Got it. But when someone says, I'm going to quit my job to start a new business, they usually bring with them the corporate principles to their entrepreneurship and wonder why it didn't work out the way they thought it would. I'll just say it again. I am this person. I show up as this person. I'm going to start a project that may be outside of my field, which is going to allow me to meet and network with people that have never done anything like this before, or they have done things like this before, and they can help me and we can mission match. My mission helps their mission. Their mission helps my mission. And voila. You start a business if you want to. You sell one thing to one person. Oh, it costs time and money. Does it? Of course. But couldn't you pre-sell it? Couldn't you get a letter of intent? See, that's the thing. People want to go from zero to 100 and start at 100. I think you should act as if you're on 100 and put all the pieces together. But if you act as if you're at zero, you don't even try. 
So you work from the future, not endlessly towards it. Even this, even what we're talking about right now is means, not ends. Because why does someone want to quit their job? Why do they want to stop working by the hour? Why can't they raise their prices? Why can't they do these things? Who cares? Once you have that thing, what would you be doing? Let's start there. If you free up time and, and change things, then, then what? Because most people will say, well, I do my, you know, I spend two weeks hanging out with my family in Italy. I mean, not most people, but people say something like that, right? And you go, so you need to change your entire life to go do that right now? Maybe you do. But most people probably could figure that out within the next six to 12 months. Most people, meaning people that are in situations where they have disposable income and can do something, it's a matter of attention. Richie, this has been so fun and uh, really appreciate the discussion we've had so far. At this point, we're actually going to transition over to the Take Action Today segment of the show. We're going to find one final piece of actionable advice from you that we can take from this episode. We'll be right back. Now it's time for the Take Action Today segment of the show. Richie, it's been a fun conversation, and one of the things that has come up over and over again in our conversations, this idea of the questions that we ask ourselves. So as you leave us here today, what would you say to people about what they can do with these questions? What kind of questions can they ask themselves here to really let some of these things sink in and take action on what we've talked about? Our lives are led by the questions we ask. Your past is your past. It's made up of who you are up until this point. But at some point, our future is based on how we think of the future and the questions we're asking about where we're going, because that's how we show up in the present. To make this super real, ask yourself, who were you 10 years ago? At this point in time that we're recording this podcast, that would be what, 2012? In 2012, I'm just going to guess you were a different person. You had different thoughts. You had different feelings. You may have lived in a different place. You were in a different station in your life. You had a different income. Maybe you were married or maybe you weren't. Maybe you had kids, maybe you didn't. What I'm trying to say is, why are we pretending and acting as if in 2033, we're going to be the same person that we are in 2023? Meaning, why are we setting goals when we already know the goals we had 10 years ago, we don't even want them anymore today? Our lives have changed that much. When you think of what you're trying to do and you wait till 2033 to do them, you will find that the opportunity has passed and you probably don't want them anymore anyways. This is why thinking from the future and acting it out in the now is essential. Instead of thinking 10 years, that's a long time. Ask yourself, you know, if it were two years from today, what would have to happen for me to feel like there's progress, for me to feel like I'm successful in my personal life, in my family life, in my professional life, in contributions to the world? And once you understand that, that becomes your North Star. Because who's to say that you can't create a project around your fitness or your finances or your family? Right now, who's to say that that thing you want to do and the person you want to become in two years couldn't actually happen in a year or in the next six months, the next two weeks, or even better, possibly today? That type of thinking allows you to engineer a life that is on purpose and the operationalizing of it is fit to purpose, both professionally and personally. Ask a better question, get a better answer. Richie, I know there's going to be people who want to reach out, connect, learn more about what you're up to, learn about the book. Where would you point them? Go to richienorton.com. 
And there you'll find that I have some freebies to help you turn your ideas into reality and to optimize your time in a way that you maybe have never even thought of before. Please, I would really appreciate it. Just grab a copy of Anti-Time Management on Amazon. It's available uh, for pre-order right now. You can get it right now. And the things that we talked about at a high level become granular in this book through principles and allow you to be able to make these decisions from the start in a way I think will really help you be incredibly productive at work and at home. Thanks so much. Look forward to uh, engaging and staying connected and we'll wish you nothing but continued success in everything that you do and spreading this message. Thanks so much, Richie. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to www.engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that we mentioned. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars also at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Additionally, for any engineers who are struggling and need help taking the next career step, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.